Byers, and this is Successful Associations Today. My guest is Jamie Notter, author and culture designer at Human Workplaces, where he helps leaders drive growth and engagement by aligning workplace culture with success. With 25 years of experience in conflict resolution, generations, and culture change, Jamie is also the author of three books, Human Eyes, When Millennials Take Over, and The Non-Obvious Guide to Employee Engagement. He holds a master's degree in conflict resolution from George Mason and a certificate in organization development from Georgetown, where he serves as adjunct faculty. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you very much. Happy to have an opportunity to talk to you about culture and innovation and uh, the role that culture plays in innovation. So let's say an association CEO comes to you and says, we want to be more innovative. Jamie, where do we start? Well, from as, as, as you pointed out, I'm the culture guy. I'm the guy with the culture hammer, so everything looks like a culture nail. Um, but in fact, I do like to start with culture in the innovation uh, conversation because what we have seen repeatedly in both associations, actually, and in the corporate world is that a lot of organizations love the ideas behind innovation, right? They love creativity. They love future focus. Like they're all about it, uh, but they're not, they, or I don't know if they're not so supportive. They don't know how to support in the culture, the practices, right? Like we don't know how to take risks. We don't know how to run experiments on a, on a sort of big scale in order to really have things you can learn from. Um, and that was actually one of the first culture patterns that we noticed in looking at the aggregate data from our assessment was that around innovation, the concepts are valued, the practices are not. And so I have to have that conversation with, with a leader to say, do you have that or not? Is that real here? Because if it is, that's probably where you need to start. Is it that the practices aren't valued or we don't recognize how the practices support innovation? Is it we're just impatient and we want to get down to the fun stuff? <laughs> it could be that one. I, I mean, I think it varies by organization, right? So it'll depend. But um, another piece that I see a lot, there's, there's something that we measure in our assessment that's called permission to hack. Okay. So like if I want to change something that I'm working on, my manager is going to back me up. I'm not going to like, they're not going to say, hey, you're not allowed to do that differently. That's often very present in the culture. So like I've seen a lot of cultures where they, they value the practice of innovation, but like at a small scale, I think it's the scale part that we just don't know how to do. So when I say not valued, it's not because they devalue it. It's just they don't know how to really create a, an organization where experimentation happens a lot, you know what I mean? Or where beta testing, like I, I think particularly in the association world, we don't like to show unfinished stuff to our members, right? But that's what beta testing is. <laughs> and uh, that's how you learn, right? So like, it's just, it's a challenge. We just, we haven't built systems that sort of enable it. Not only do we not like to show unfinished stuff to our members, we don't like to show unfinished stuff to our boards. Yes. And so that's very uncomfortable or even asking a board for permission to do a beta test or to have this um, 
to show something that's unfinished or something that we want to get some feedback on is is difficult. So just to make sure that we're all on the same page here, including me, uh, you define culture as the collection of words, actions, thoughts, and stuff in quote marks mm -hmm. that clarify and reinforce, reinforce what is truly valued inside an organization. So uh, the, the culture really is how we operate, what we do, and how we do it. And it's everything together. So is it that some of these things just haven't been called out as being important? Is it that we don't have a process and so the expectations internally aren't there? Or, or is it as basic as a lack of understanding? I, I think around innovation specifically, it's, it's, it's more that we don't know I think we don't realize how our existing processes and our existing way of doing things actually squeezes innovation out. Around innovation particularly and around experimentation particularly, uh, I do think there is some words, there are some words components to it, which is we do have to talk about failure uh, better. Like that's, that's, that comes up in the association world. Like it's not a new topic, um, but I don't think we're so good at it, particularly on the volunteer side, really framing that, that, that these failures are paving the path for something greater, that kind of thing. So we have to get that concept a little better. And then, like, um, I say this when I do keynotes all the time. If you want more experimentation, then you know that monthly dashboard that you send up to the CEO? Add how many experiments did you run on it, period. It's a simple process change. But if you're a big association and you've got multiple lines of management, right, and some one of those lines is reporting zeros every month, someone's going to go talk to them. Hey, why are you not running experiments? And they could have a really good answer. They could say, you know, well, because the members are expecting me to do A, B, and C, and if I don't do that, I'm in trouble, so I don't have time, right? And But you're like, hey, we, we made this an organizational priority, so figure it out. That person would go back to their staff and say, we got to run some experiments. Someone would have an idea like, hey, we could experiment on this little piece. And like, oh, yeah, I guess we could. We have time to do that right? Suddenly behavior has changed. Like that's culture change, right? Like you just said, we value experimentation and here's a way to create space to do it. Um, I mean, the other piece that's been mentioned for years is like literally the, the you know, the Google 20% time thing, like give people time to do this. And, you know, most associations freak out when I say the 20% time, like I don't have 20% time, but then 5%, 10%, give them a day. Something. Every, you know what I mean? Like there's something you can do. Um, so it's those kinds of process changes and really simple, um, uh, you know, changing your, your, your approach to the work that would create space, I think, for some more experimentation. You said something that I think is important, and you said uh, even a little experiment. And I think that's part of the mental hurdle yeah. is we have this idea that an experiment has to be this big, monstrous, breathtaking, time-intensive, expensive thing. And really, continuous innovation means experimenting with all sorts of things, big, little, expensive or not. Yeah. I mean, we, we chase after the holy grail and this the something that is going to have a huge return on investment, which which absolutely we should be doing. But if but, but that's not the only thing we, we should be doing. And especially if we're a culture that is still new in valuing innovation, I think the little experiments are an important piece. 
Well, I mean, I think they're I think they're the core, uh, and um, I mean, you know the the uh, company W.L. Gore and Associates that made Gore-Tex, right? They're totally they've been known for years as like an innovation, you know, machine, right? Um, I heard the CEO talk, and she said, "Well, we have a phrase at at Gore, which is, if you're going to punch holes in the boat, do it above the waterline." <laughs> Right. Like experimentation is great, but you don't mess with the core business model. You know what I mean? Um, so the phrase that we like to use with clients is how can you create containers within which people can run experiments? Because you want them to feel safe. So like it can't be totally safe. Like we know this experiment's going to succeed. Well, then it's not an experiment. Right. But like here are the, the edges of w- that we can't go past. As long as we're clear on that. And are willing to take something that might not work within that, right? You just got to make those definitions. I think that's actually the leadership's job. Where can we experiment? Where are we willing to tolerate um, non-performance, basically, of what, of people's time and effort, right? Because that's you know it might not work, and we would learn from that. Um, so setting those parameters and then making that clear to people, uh, I think, is really liberating, you know. And then they'll say, oh, well, then I can just totally run with this, uh, and you get, I think, get more different behaviors out of it. So you mentioned the, the willingness to experiment, the willingness to fail. What, what else is true about innovative cultures? If I was in charge of creating a more innovative culture, what other kinds of things should I be thinking about? Well, I mean, I think, and, and I will say, and actually this is true in the data, but also anecdotally, working with associations versus working with, with the, in the corporate world, associations still struggle with the we've always done it that way excuse like they can't shake that i don't know what it is like other organizations don't struggle with that as much but but we are still very much drawn to tradition and the past um and that is an inherently limiting factor when it comes to innovation it is not where the solutions the new solutions are going to come from um and and so we are we are comfortable with what we know works. Um, and so that's a mindset piece that I think associations do struggle with. And I think we need to, to um, find a way to shift that perspective and be looking to the future and be looking to invent rather than sort of, you know, perfect what we already have. You say we value tradition and the, you know, the irony is associations are built on tradition so saying that we're going to do things differently is sort of like saying we're going to forget the last 150 years or what what got us to this space. And I don't think it has to be an either or. Yeah. Either we're a traditional organization and we're innovative. It, it can be both. We've been a traditional organization. We have some traditions that have been helpful and beneficial that we want to take forward with us. But, but we also have some that maybe we need to just lay to rest. I mean, my my metaphor on this, which I'm kind of just making up right now, is that like as a human being, I've been innovating myself my whole life. I am not like I was when I was eight or 28 or 48, frankly, right? So, and everyone does this and everyone expects to do this, but we don't think that we've given up on who we were. We didn't abandon that. Interesting I'm, analogy. I still am who I was. I still have those memories. I still value my eight-year-old self. You know what I mean? You don't give anything up, but you're constantly growing and developing. Like, it's a spiral. Um, 
And so, and the alternative is to not grow. <laughs> so um, that. So it's I, interesting that what we do naturally, personally, doesn't come naturally for us professionally all the time. Well, and that, I mean, my argument is because we created organizations that are entirely non-human, <laughs> right? Our first book was humanized on purpose. And the principles of what it means to be human are actually more, I think, enable organizations to thrive more, right? I think that's what, that's the whole, that was our whole point. Um, and this is an example of one where, like, we can't, like, if we feel like we can't give up on what worked, because it will somehow betray who we are, right? Like that's, that's kind of the, how I feel it comes across in the association world. We can't betray what these fine men and women did before us, right? Um, which is, which I, for me comes from a mechanical point of view, like, like machines don't grow, you know what I mean? And traditional management is very mechanical and it is about like getting it right and then doing it that way over and over again. So uh, it, 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 it's not surprising to me that associations are kind of stuck there because I think they're, they're still struggling with this transition from the old way of managing to the new way of managing. Um, and they're still a little bit towards the old way. And when, when you think about an organization that wants to change how it's doing and how it's evolving, is that one person's job? Is it many people's job? Is it everybody's job? Well, y yes. So all of the above. I mean, it, it's, um, I mean, we struggle with this. We, we wrote a white paper about, about basically about uh, a maturity model for culture management. And it, towards the end, I got to the, you can't make culture everybody's job part because if you make it everybody's job, then it is nobody's, nobody's job. job. Like, you know what I mean? Like everyone's like, Oh good. Everyone's doing this. I don't have to. Right. So, um, so that's a struggle. But on the other hand, what you're alluding to is the fact that you don't change culture single-handedly, you know? Um, so I actually, I mean, this is, this is for me the leading edge of, the culture challenge in organizations is figuring out how to manage it in an ongoing way, right? Like we manage finance and we manage HR to some extent. We manage components in our organization, but nobody's managing culture, which is a mistake, right? We should be. Um, and so I think it doesn't have to be everybody. It has to have a home, the culture management work, uh, in most associations, that's going to be the leadership team, right? They're just not big enough to have like a, a, a home for culture in HR, basically. Uh, the big corporations, that's probably where it's going to be. For most associations under 100 staff, it's probably your senior team that is going to have to be the, the primary stewards for culture work. Uh, so they're going to have to figure out some processes for sensing and responding what's going on in our culture is it the way it needs to be do we need to make some changes um and then when you're into the make changes piece that's where it involves everybody right that's where you have to start strategically figuring out we got to make changes in every corner of the organization so that we're all on the same page and that's that's going to be creating projects that do that and that will touch everybody i think and that is a never-ending job i know it's not a a, a a, a project that you do and you're done and then you get to rest on your laurels. But what's the, you know, if you had to say based on your experience with association, what's been kind of the, the expected uh, 
time to get this started and get it embedded enough in the organization that it begins to become second nature? Are we, are we talking months? Are we talking years? I know it's different based on each individual organization, but if you had to make a sweeping generalization. Well, I remember years ago, I went to an association event and association CEO said it takes a minimum of eight years to change culture. Wow. And I was like, well, if you want to take eight years, knock yourself out. But <laughs> I've seen complete transformations in 12 months. And like, that happened because a decision was made, an effort was made. What else? Well, in that one, they fired the whole management team. Okay. So, <laughs> that, all right. <laughs> That's so I'm, not the only, I'm not saying it's the only way to do it. Um, that was not in the association world, but, but I mean, it was a remarkable transformation, actually, like total, like total culture of fear to totally like amazing in like, well, and a, a lot of times it does take, sadly, it yeah, does take replacement of leaders. But I, in the last couple of years, the work we've been doing, we spent, we spent a bunch of time getting the assessment and figuring out a set of priorities. And then when it's time to actually do the, the change, right, then we call them plays in a playbook. When you run those plays, uh, we're seeing significant results in six months. Like, like the CEO saying, wow, last year, like we just had three huge initiatives happen simultaneously. We finished them all under budget and ahead of schedule. That wow. stuff did not happen before we got clear on these things. You know what I mean? So I think impact is pretty quick. And even like I've shifted my approach with organizations in sort of COVID land that we're in now, like, you need to start changing things immediately. Like in the last few months, everyone's culture has already changed when we went remote, but, but, or it hasn't changed even though it we're working differently. You know what I mean? Like, so I feel like you need to start faster. Um, and like, I, it takes a while to do that. Hey, where are we going long-term here? And, and are we in the right trajectory and what do we need to shift? Like that's one long-term conversation. I think that needs to happen in parallel to the, what needs to change right now that we're all on zoom? Like, you know, how do we make decisions? Cause I don't think we can make them the same way we did before. Like stuff like that needs to change right away and, and, and can, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, there's a bunch so, of small things that you can just. Change. Yeah. You hit on one of my questions for you, which is, you know, the, how has the pandemic changed culture work? Uh, and you touched on it. We're not co-located necessarily anymore. We're remote and we may be for the uh, foreseeable future and we may be forever in some cases, but associations also their resources have likely changed. Uh, and, and for some in a very big way, if their meetings were canceled, their revenue streams have been disrupted. So, I'm guessing that the pandemic creates a sense of urgency. It accelerates some of the work that possibly needs to be done. Is, are there any other implications that you've seen? Yeah, I, I worked with a client who, who sort of named it. Like she, she said, she said, I don't know. It's like the five stages of grief. There's got to be, she doesn't, there got to be like a five stages of this pandemic, you know? <laughs> And it doesn't know if it's five, right? But like it, whatever. Yeah. The note, the, the idea was when we first had to shut down. So March, April, everyone mobilized. Like, and I mean, I will. I got to give not just associations, but every organization credit. We did massive change in a short amount of time with a minimum amount of disruption. You know what I mean? I didn't actually think that was possible, right? So everyone, there was actually a bunch of adrenaline back then, like, we're going to do this, we're going to figure it out, and how do we get computers to everybody? You know what I mean? And we solved that problem. Um, and But like late, mid, late summer started to be, this is not ending. <laughs> 
we're, I don't know what normal is, you know? Um, and a lot of the sort of, um, the new ways of working started creating friction points. And that friction was starting to bubble up. I'm maybe mixing my metaphors, but you know what I mean? Like I'm see, I have a lot of clients emailing me and saying we're, we're starting to fray around the edges. Right. And, and a lot of that is because they didn't realize that when they shifted to all remote, which they can did very well, that it made subtle changes in how things happen. Like uh, this one client is just, they, they have a culture where they make collaborative decisions. Like they're constantly, when they were back in the office, pulling people in. Hey, Bob, we got this meeting on this really important issue. I want your voice in here. You know what I mean? Like that was how they did it. When you're virtual, you can't do that anymore because Bob's on another Zoom call right now. You know what I mean? Like it's literally logistically impossible to be as inclusive as they were. Uh, and that was creating friction. And so they had to decide, what are we going to do? Are we going to be, are we going to just say, hey, folks, we got to be a little bit more command and control now because of the situation? Or are we going to create other opportunities where people can provide input on decisions? Like that was a challenge they had to meet. Um, but that, for me, that's the kind of fraying around the edges piece uh, that that people are facing now. Um, and And everyone is having to change how they do stuff around information sharing when we're not together. You know, like there's a whole category of stuff that around transparency that we could manage in the office in a kind of passive way that you can't, you have to be more active about it. You've got to find ways to get that information in front of someone rather than them just sort of noticing casually. Uh, Yeah. So since we're on that whole fraying piece of it, you know, just from a culture standpoint, what, what advice would you have for leadership teams who are trying to manage this? So uh, number one, I I do think leadership teams need to get better at the, the sense and respond piece. Like they need to be able to sense what's fraying and have a conversation about why that is fraying as opposed to just saying, wow, that's fraying darn, like this is frustrating. You know what I mean? Like that's your job now as a leadership team, I think, is to find these friction points and sharply define them, right? And and get to the root of them. And then the, I think the other piece around the fraying that maybe doesn't get as much attention is I, I do think this is just based on our collective uh, lack of human connection that everyone is living with right now. And we just got to find ways to like enable more human connection. Like, and I, I wrote a blog post about this and I said, Hey, I can't give specific recommendations because you got to follow the science, but find ways to get together in physical environments. Like, like if you're, if you manage a team of five, go to a park and do your staff meeting. I've heard of that happening every now and then I know it's, and they're like, Oh, we all got to drive to this park. And now we live in used to drive to the office, (laughs) right? Like it's not very efficient. I agree. But find ways to do that, to be in each other's presence. Um, I've, got a, I've got a friend that I ride bikes with. He happens to be a medical scientist, a good friend to have these days. But we found ways to ride together, sort of. Um, together apart. And that's made such a huge difference to me. And I, I, I kind of underestimated it. So find ways for that human connection. And then I think this is true for almost every organization. Well, my original background is in conflict resolution, so I've been arguing this for 20 years, but sharpen your conflict skills because people are on edge and we got to be able to have those conversations, you know. Um, so the difficult conversation piece is 
is huge. Not to mention that we're having to have conversations about things like layoffs and you know what I mean? Like we're going to have a lot of difficult conversations um, coming up. D diversity, equity, inclusion conversations. think those are going to start happening. Uh, are we good at that? Not necessarily. So that internal capacity around difficult conversations, I think is huge. And you know, conflict does not age gracefully. And so recognizing that there is a friction point and then setting it aside for later when it's convenient to handle really is a mistake yeah. in, in my perspective. And I think the work of leaders has changed. And that may mean spending more time checking in on direct reports and checking in not only on are you getting the work done, but are you okay? Yeah. And are there things that we need to know about your situation? And that may not be what I took my position for. That may not be the kind of managing I thought I was doing. But I think flexibility is going to be a key piece of, of managing what's happening uh, and managing the whole culture piece of this is that, that we've that, got to make changes if we expect our teams to stay that, with us. That's, that's actually like one of my fundamental arguments around culture is that it has to change and adapt to the reality. Like that's what we're experiencing right now is our reality. We're not used to our reality changing this much, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what we're struggling with, but it is, it has, and it will change the way it's changing. And so when your environment changes that much, your culture must change. You must value different behaviors in order to be successful, like, like you're talking about. And it's like, if, if I know that you were successful before as a brilliant, you know, strategy leader that could shoot, make the right strategic choices and lead your, you know, no, that's great. Now we need you to talk to your people. You know what I mean? Um, because that's what's required. Without that human connection, it's going to be harder for people to stay connected to the work, that kind of thing. It's, it's going to impact success. And so if it does, you just you have to be able to adapt. What advice would you give to getting the board on board? Because this is a big piece of this. Broadly speaking, the, the, the conversation with the board about culture should be framed as... We have to create a uh, this. We have to create a culture that's going to drive success and deliver value to members. And that process and that work is the work of the staff. Okay. And so here's what we're doing on that. And and what I would report to the board on the culture work are the outcomes of your culture work, not the process. Right. So it's kind of like hey, we actually did an assessment. Don't share the data with them, okay? Just don't, don't get them, don't do that. We did an assessment and we came up with these really good cultural priorities. So we think this is what it's gonna, you know, and this is, this is what's gonna guide all of our culture work. Like, oh, that's cool. And then, then do the work and then show them the results, right? Like, and say, hey, we did this work, like the, the CEO I mentioned, and we just finished these three projects ahead of schedule and under budget. You know what I mean? Like, and we, we attribute this to the culture. So just keep it about results um, and keep it about success, right? To keep that as the frame. Because um, if you start framing it as results and success and then people leave, I'm like, I know people left, but I got results and success. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we did that on purpose. Um, and that person was great but they were not set up for this system that we just created that, that's going to take us to the next level. So we helped them find a job where they could really be themselves. So I think that's a good place for us to wrap up. And as we do, uh, one last question for you. 
What is one of the most, and you don't need to give us a name, but you can just give us some um, specifics around it. What's the most impressive culture turnaround you've seen and what was true about it? Well, the most impressive culture turnaround was the one I mentioned at the beginning. And I, I, I didn't have a firsthand view of the before. I only had a firsthand view of the after. So I was relying on uh, stories about the before. But what, what impressed me most about the turnaround was the discipline that the CEO had in focusing on what makes his people successful. And, and in this context, he had two largely different operations. It was a, was a nonprofit that had a, a mental health hotline, but then they also had like a policy and research component, right? It's a very, very different work, right? And he went into their organization and, and into each side and said, hey, what, what do you need to be more successful? The, the hotline people said, we need a gym in our office because when I get a five-minute break, I need to let off some steam, right? So he built them a gym in the office. Like a lot of people would say, I can't do that. That's too expensive. That's, and what, these other people don't need a gym. That's not fair, Right. In fact, for the other people that were doing the research, they weren't connecting enough. He built them a puzzle room. <laughs> so they could, on their breaks, go hang out, do puzzles, start chatting, realizing they're doing research in the same area. And like, they, they got more innovation out of that puzzle room than anything else, right? Um, but it was designed around the needs of the employees. That is probably, and I will say, particularly in this COVID world, if you can show your people that you are designing around their unique needs, they will stay, they will give extra effort. And so that's what I would try and work on. Yeah, great. Jamie, thank you so much for being here today. Wonderful to talk with you. I'm Mary Byers, and this is Successful Associations Today. 